And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Nicole Angelique Kerr, who when she was a 19-year-old cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy, had a transformative near-death experience, which we will learn about and more. Nicole, thank you so much for joining me and welcome. Thank you, Jeff. I'm delighted to be here and look forward to today's discussion. If you don't mind, can we start with your NDE and what happened? Absolutely. Um, Well, first of all, I will tell you, I was one of the first women classes at the Air Force Academy. Many of you may not know that um, the Academy started admitting women in 76. So the first class was 1980 and mine was 86. So I was in that yeah, new phase of them getting used to having women there. And it was very difficult. I will be honest with you. It was uh, a very abusive environment um, for most women. And um, unfortunately, a lot of things, uh, some change and some don't. But um, I was there at that time and I was uh, going into my sophomore year, which you're called a three degree. And the squadron that I was in, we were participating in a kind of like kickoff for the new year in September, you know, welcoming everybody back from the summer vacation, summer um, duty stations, things like that. And so there's about 100 persons per squadron. And I got there late that day because it was a Sunday and I was at the Commandant of Cadet's house encouraging new high schoolers to come to the academy. So I'd been doing that earlier and came later to the function and didn't get to stay very long um, because we have to be back by at the academy by 7.35 p.m. We always have a curfew. So um, I was one of the last to leave and there was a uh, upperclassman. You're not allowed to have a car there until you're a junior or senior. So um, he was the last one there with um, a car. So I asked him if I could have a ride back and he said, yes. And so what I didn't realize is that he had been drinking most of the day. And then we stopped, he wanted to stop at a bar on the way back to the Academy and have a couple of more beers and, I was like, okay, you know, you're older than me. You're, you've been here longer, you know, the rules and what you can get away with. And so we stopped there and that was the first time I had had two beers and a cigarette. And then he wanted to stop and watch the sunset over the Rocky, beautiful Rocky mountains. And I was starting to get really nervous that we weren't going to make it back in time. And I didn't want to start the year with demerits and tours and all the, the negative consequences of not following the rules. So needless to say, um, we, we watched that. And then I said, we've got to get back on the road. And the last thing I remember was getting back on the road and then the next thing I remember was waking up in the ICU at Penrose Community Hospital. So I never made it back to the academy. And what happened was, I can shut if you're, if you can see that, that is a 1965 Corvette convertible. Mm. And it did not have seatbelts, which actually back then when the top was off was a um, blessing because it wound up flipping onto its top. So we were thrown out and I was, um, there was a group of bystanders in a house next door, uh, close by that came out when they heard it. 
and they determined that I was dead. They could not get any kind of pulse on me or anything. So they got some blankets, covered me up, and we're all going over to look at the, the driver. And so um, 10 to 15 minutes elapsed and the volunteer fire department got there. And then a little bit after that, the police, the other fire departments and um, ambulances rolled onto the scene. Uh, but thank goodness there was an EMT and that's a um, emergency medical technician uh, came. He was volunteering his time and he looked up at the group and said, look, nobody calls a patient um, that's not qualified to do it in terms of a time of death. So um, he took the blankets off of me. And the reason I even know this is he came to my hospital room um, about 10 weeks after the accident happened and filled me in. So I've been able to piece together my story between the accident reports, um, the police reports, the medical reports, uh, talking to the various people, um, the players in, in my situation and put that all together. So he told me that he got to the scene and he couldn't get any vitals either. And so he did something called a sternal knuckle press where um, you take your knuckles and you go right on your sternum and it hurts big time if you just do it to yourself you know, when you're alive. But what that did was cause my right eye to flicker and my pupil dilate. So he knew there was some type of life in me. And when you think of the only sign of life he got was my eye, I think of that phrase, you know, your eyes are the window to your soul, right? So um, that's when my soul came back into my body. And so he was able to get, um, these, this new equipment called mast pants that you put on your legs and they force all the blood to go up to your organs, got me in the, the bus, as they call it, the ambulance, and got me to the closest hospital, which was not a trauma hospital. It was just a community hospital. And it turns out I had amputated my uh, left foot. It was just hanging on by about that much skin. Uh, broken both sides of my pelvis, uh, um, severed my right wrist, uh, had a bad road burn from skidding on the pavement uh, on my face, and just um, lots of uh, abrasions and lacerations. I cut a fourth degree laceration in between my anal and sphincter, cut out a huge hole on the inside of my right thigh, and um, had lost just a tremendous amount of blood. My blood pressure was 60 over zero. So you can see why they thought I was um, dead and it got me to the hospital and just tried to stabilize me that night. And it took them all night to stabilize me. And then out of the blue, I stabilized. And so um, it was a journey of uh, almost four months in the hospital, seven weeks in ICU. Um, I had six major operations, um, one to attach my foot. I had a skin graft there, a skin graft on the inside of my thigh, um, you know, setting my wrist, my pelvis ill just by laying in a bed for, six, for four months. So um, they did have to do surgery on my face. And, and just it was every time I'd start to get better, Jeff, something would happen and I would go down. I had to have a colostomy. And as a 19 year old, I didn't even know what that was. You know, so I wake up from surgery and I got part of my bowel in a bag, you know, and I'm just going, 
okay, I, I've never had sex before. I don't even, this is going to repulse a guy. You know, it's just going to be, that's the end of my sex life and hadn't even started. So it was, um, it was traumatic. It was really traumatic for me. And I only remembered bright white lights. That's the only thing I remembered from the whole, the whole, you know, that whole situation. And I couldn't, you know, I finally asked my doctor when I went back to visit them in 2008, um, I finally asked her, what was the bright white lights? And she said, Nicole, it was nothing that we did. It wasn't the operating room lights. Um, it was something um, greater than me or greater than your medical team happening. And I believe you're right. I think, you know, you were um, pronounced dead. Um, you were quote clinically dead for at least 10 to 15 minutes. So, um, you know, I'm not surprised that you're now starting to remember that you have a near death experience. Um, that's the beginning of it is that bright white light. So um, needless to say, it was a um, very long journey in the hospital. And, I'm, you know, you can read the book and it will tell you exactly. I start with the opening chapter of the crash and um, the whole timeline of what happened. And then um, 19 years later, I'm working at the CDC and I'm coming out of Starbucks and get my car to drive to work. And I clear as day, Jeff, remember how I was sitting in the car and it was a Corvette convertible. So, you know, 19, you're cool. You put one leg up on the, the dashboard and the other one, you kind of fold over like in a triangle, like you're really cool. And um, that's the position I was in when we hit a boulder and I went butt up through the windshield, which caused me to slice my left foot off and slice all the insides of my legs, but it saved my head other than having a TBI, which is um, wasn't really known back then, but it wasn't brain damage, so to speak. And my spinal cord was intact. So I was very fortunate um, in that respect. But I did code in an operation. Um, they called the time on it. In one of them, it was an emergency surgery. I had had so much um, infection from the debris, the fiberglass, the feast, all of that. And they just were not winning that war. And so I, I coded on the, the operating room table and they went and told my parents that I had, I, I died and, um, you know, start making funeral arrangements. And then the surgical nurse comes flying down the hall and tells my parents, they got me going again. So, you know, I, I struggled to stay down here. Uh, I did not want to be here. And then I had several more episodes that I write in the book that were basically life and death, you know, and that's what I was living for four months in the hospital was this fear and panic and paralyzed will of terror of, am I going to make it today or not? You know, because there was always, every time I started to get a little better, something would happen. So it was, um, I thought boot camp at the Air Force Academy was tough. Um, and it was because I had to go to remedial training for that. But my gosh, surviving in this hospital and ICU for four months was a whole different ball game that required a whole different set of strength. Um, so that is my near-death experience. And like I said, I didn't I didn't remember it for 19 years. So what happened was my parents. Uh, are very religious. 
And my dad had told me, because he was a 1960 graduate of the Air Force Academy and wanted one of his kids to go. So I step up, people pleaser that I am, your daughter is going to do this. And I, I was like, I knew in boot camp, Jeff, I had made the wrong decision. And I just couldn't quit, you know, that humiliation and sense of failure and disappointment because, my God, it took so much to get there. It took a congressional nomination. It took, you know... Uh, high academics. It took physical tests I had to pass. I had done so much to get there and to quit. I just, the shame, I don't think I could have lived through the shame of disappointing my father, especially, you know? And so um, my dad basically blamed me because I disobeyed his rules. He told me not to drink, not to smoke, and not to date cadets when I first went in. Now, when I look at that now, I'm just like, that's ridiculous. You're going off to college, college and that is a strict place. You don't get to party like everybody else, you know, but I'm going to a school with 90% men. Okay. And alcohol, you know, uh, my grandfather was an alcoholic. So my dad forbade alcohol um, and I had never smoked. So it was like, I was trying to have fun in my life. And the first time that I just allow myself to go have fun, bam, I just got nailed. Mm -hmm. So um, when my, when my memory came back, what, instead of going to work, I went to my chiropractor and he said it was repressed memories and these memories my body now felt safe enough for me to start remembering the accident. So I do remember the accident. And I talk about that in the book, what I remember and the horror of getting uh, when I flew up out of the, the car, stopping and looking down and knowing I was going to die. You know, it was just like you're going to crash and there's nothing you can do. And that's going to be the end of it. And then um, what happened was this like angelic being Casper the ghost with with wings you know it just came down and lifted me up so I never hit the ground per se and my spirit just left my body and we went up in the direction so I could look down and see me in in the ditch and I could see I was wearing my you know teal azad and my khaki shorts and um I was lying there emotionless, you know, and I was like, oh, dear. Um, but where I was, the level that I was at, I could hear other spiritual beings, angels communicating. And I was like, I was not in a human form. And but I could hear other conversations. And it was like, oh, my gosh. And the conversation that I heard that really bears repeating is these other two spirits were having a conversation and they said they have to ask us for help. And that means that we on earth have to ask the angelic realm for help. If we need something, they are not because we have free will, they are not going to intervene unless they're asked or in my case, unless it's, it's a life threatening emergency. So that's a lesson that we all need to take away is a reminder to always ask the angels for help. They're there, but they're not going to intercede until we ask them. Now you said that it was, the angel was like Casper the ghost. Can you elaborate on that? What the angel looked like? Um, you know how there's like vapor when, uh, 
when it's cold and you breathe and it's 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 kind of a vaporish that's what it was like you know and casper kind of has an outline but there's no really inside to casper right it's kind of a vapor thing but you see you 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 know casper you can talk to casper you can understand casper you know um but i guess the form changes and now I've realized the more work I've done that that was actually my grandfather. And back at 19 years old, I did know about angels from the Bible. I knew uh, the archangels and I knew that they they were supposedly good angels and bad angels. And so I did know that. And he knew that I could recognize the form of an angel and feel safe because when I was lifted up, it was like, Oh my gosh, it was so soothing. It was like I was an astronaut in outer space, you know, just floating around. It was like I was in a cocoon. Um, this just brilliant sense of everything is okay. You're like, you know, there was no negativity, there's no judgment, there's no nothing. It was just so peaceful. And it's really hard to put it in words that that sense and colors that you can't even that we don't have in the 64 Crayola box. You know, there's more colors out there. We just haven't, we can't see them. And when you think about most NDE stories have that bright white light, Raymond Moody, you know, who coined the term near-death experience said that was the most common element was, was bright white lights, but they're not blinding, Jeff. You would think if you had, when you think of headlights coming at you, you know, or you get bright white lights coming at you most of us get blinded here on earth from it right yeah but but it but it wasn't that way you could see and when i think about what does light represent in the color spectrum energy yeah and it's all the colors right combined it absorbs white absorbs all the colors and so that's what I think when the light of God surrounds you, that white light is God energy. Did you have any communication with that white light? No, I just, it was all around me and it, the feeling of it was safety, was comfort, was, um, uh, was it healing? Yes. Yes. There was no negativity no judgment no mistakes no uh it's just love it, it was just an abundance of unconditional love it was awesome when you heard the other conversations going on around you did you see those beings as well no i did, i couldn't see them but i could hear them i could hear them plain as day you know and i knew they were next to me i had a sense that they were close by me but um, no, I don't have a sense of what they quote look like, except nobody was in human form. It was all this kind of, um, what do I want to call Vaporing, you know, uh, it, yeah, Casper. <laughs> now you mentioned that if humans want help, they have to ask for it. So were they arguing with each other and saying something like, well, if she wants our help, she better ask for it or she needs to ask for it? No, it was more like things were going on down here that could have been prevented if we, that, if that person would have asked for help. 
For example, like, you, like the accident would have never happened if you would have asked for help? Well, in that case, that's that's called an emergency situation because I didn't know the accident was going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I didn't. But in some, in your daily life, if you have something that's going on and, you you know, you don't have to do it all by yourself, you can ask for their help, ask for their help for finances, with the relationship, with whatever it is that you need help with, you know, instead of trying to struggle and do it on your own. There is spiritual um help available on the other side. You have to believe it though, you know, but you have to ask. Interesting. Why do we have to believe it? You have to believe in, in, in them. But why is that? You think, do you think? Uh, I think if you don't believe it's kind of like God, this the concept of God. If you believe that God is an old white man sitting up in heaven keeping score on you uh that's what you're going to manifest i mean that's what you're going to um create in your belief system that uh allows you to um stay in a self-sabotaging in my opinion limiting belief okay but to believe that there's a whole different realm of being and that that is where we come from and where we go back to, I think it's important to have a sense of belief that angels exist. They exist in the earth form. And I have a chapter about, you know, my medical team. I believe they're all earth angels, you know, and I think there's different types of angels and there there's there's a song you might hear that will be a reminder you can also communicate with people on the other side that it passed you know um you can ask them you know please send me a sign that you're doing okay you know uh, and then you have to be open minded enough to go oh you know that bird that bird has a meaning in my life and here comes that bird of all the birds out there that one comes and comes on my feeder and sits there for a while you know so you have to to be able to be open to signs and not keep yourself in a rigid tunnel that something has to look a certain way i kind of feel that maybe what you're saying is that we are creators or co-creators of our yeah. reality so that is correct. So the belief kind of puts it in motion or something. Yeah. If you're hanging on to old belief systems, those are what are running your conscious state of mind, you know, and that's where it's really important in today's age to look at your belief systems that are limiting you. And a lot of that is um, the identities that you ascribe to. That identity for me was a people pleaser. You know, and that has wound up killing me, basically trying to please people. And at the end of the day, what do I get out of it? Pretty much nothing. Yeah. You know, I feel like a roach that got stomped on. And uh, and I think that's what we need to start looking at ourselves about and, and and going, wait a minute, where did that belief system come from? It was it just handed down from generation to generation. And I, I give an example in the book about having. Um, your great grandmother, she cooked her roast and she cut off the ends of the roast, put it in the, you know, the pan, 
and that's what she served. And then the next, uh, the grandmother did the same thing, cut off the ends of the roast. And so by the time it got up to like uh, present day, you know, the, the son asked, mom, what is going on with you guys cutting off the end of the roast, you know? Um, and she goes, well, grandmother, you know, ma did it and then grandma did it. And they went back to great grandma who was still alive. And she said, well, that was the only size pan I had. The only way I could get it in there was to yeah. cut off the ends, yeah. you know? And it was like, now we got this huge size and we're still doing it, you know, thinking it's some tradition to it instead of it was a functional thing, you know? Right. When you were out of your body, did you lose interest of your body? Like, oh, there's my body and you kind of didn't care about it anymore. Or were you concerned and about it? Didn't, didn't give it a second thought I, when I looked down, but I have to tell you this, then the, then the angel told me you're going to have to go back down. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> I do not want to do this, please. No. And I knew going back into that body was going to be painful and it was going to be, I was going to suffer a lot and I didn't want to do it. And he said, he called me by my name. And that was the first time he did because there, even your name is part of your identity and you don't need that. But um, he said, your message to tell people is not to be afraid of death. Hmm. And I'm going, now this is almost 20 years after the wreck. I'm remembering this mm -hmm. and I'm going, how in the world am I supposed to do that? You know, that is such a huge topic and we have such a, doom and gloom perspective in America on the topic of death. Um, and we get really um, acclimated to that with Halloween at an early age where death is spooky and, you know, the coffins and Dracula and all of that kind of stuff. So skeletals, skeletons and things like that. And, and people, you know, you grow up as a little one being scared of that stuff. So it would only be reinforced as you got older, that death is something that is scary. And then if you go, if you are involved in certain denominations um, that present death as, you know, if you, you, you will die. And if you haven't done what the church has told you or the theology, you will wind up in, you know, hell where there it's on fire and you know, fire and brimstone. So, you know, there's so many uh, layers to it and beliefs about it. And as a young child, especially around age six, when you start trying to individuate, if you're still in that bubble and it keeps getting reinforced, you grow up unconsciously believing that. Even though you may finally get out in the world at 20 and go, well, that doesn't make sense. I don't believe it but there's some part of your body that still does believe it. Right. And that's the part you have to clear to be able to um, truly align yourself. And when I say align, that means your physical body, your mental being, uh, your soul and your spirit. Because growing up, when I heard the word soul, it was pretty much soul music. You know, it wasn't your soul and what your soul represents and all of that, you know, it was, that was not a word that was um, understandable to me. So how did these memories of this experience come back in dreams or during meditation? 
No. And I swear it wasn't co- the Starbucks coffee because I did that every single day or maybe doing it every single day for years. Some will come back. I really believe, Jeff, that when your body feels safe enough that repressed memories will surface if they serve you and the world for the highest and greatest good. If it's not going to serve you to remember it, then you're not going to remember it. And this comes up for me to have this message directly given to me. And it's really changed my whole life. You know, having the NDE experience changed my life to begin with. I mean, I'm definitely a more sensitive person. Um, I'm sensitive to noise, crowd sizes. Um, We had a festival this weekend um, where I went to promote my book and it was so crowded. I just started, it it was just overwhelming to me. You know, I I just, I I can't handle um, uh, smells like cigarette smoke and all that. It just really makes me sick. I can't drink alcohol. Um, So it's, it's a sensitivity at a level that you have to learn to live with because you come back and you're changed. You really, really are. And to the memory part, I can only say to that is if you are doing work to help transform yourself and you had a traumatic experience that if it serves you to know it and to clear it and to move you forward, it will come up. Are you saying that when you, you are sitting in your car and drinking your Starbucks coffee, that not only the memory of what happened before the accident came back, but the entire NDE as well as like all one giant download or something. It was, it took two days to download it. I went and finally got in with my chiropractor and he's a body worker. So he helped me download it to a certain point where I got stuck. And that was up uh, when I flew out of the car, I was looking down and I couldn't go anymore. My body just shut down. And he told me to go home, go to sleep. Um, When I went home, I had to sleep in the guest room because I wanted a really small room. I didn't want my master bedroom because I lived alone at the time. And um, and I just said, okay, you know, body, if you you need to tell me anything else, let me know. And the rest of the, the memory came. And it was just like, oh my gosh. And the reason we crashed was because the guy was making a sexual pass at me and I said no. And he got angry and he speeded up and took a turn going 70 something miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone. And, um, and he was way drunk. He shouldn't have been driving. And so my car side of the car hit the boulder. And then that's was the end of the result was that picture. And, um, so I had a belief system with men if I got them angry enough, they could kill me. Hmm. So I didn't know that and was wondering why I was having relationship issues with men. And I was always pleasing them. And, um, you know, I didn't get married till I was 40 because I didn't understand why I was always pleasing them. And, and it was just one-sided. After you got out of the hospital, did you go back to school and graduate? I did eventually. Um, When I left uh, Colorado Springs, it was almost Christmas time and uh, I got I went home to Mississippi and the whole time I had a UTI, uh, a kidney infection. So I was in pain the entire flight. And so it uh, there was all these people at the hospital waiting to see me. I mean, not the hospital, the airport waiting to see me. And 
I didn't want to hug any of them. I just wanted to go to the doctor and find out why I was in such pain, you know? So it's just like, oh, I can't even enjoy the joy because I'm in pain. And I think that's been probably a real big issue in my life is because I've had a lot of pain. It's prevented me from really fully living. And that's the the whole thing that the, the irony with this is if you fear death, you're not going to truly live your life. And all of us on some level, since we haven't actually been there, um, are scared to die because we don't really know what it's going to look like. And all we can go on are the experiences that near death experience people have that come back and, and report it. But they're all positive. You know, in my book, I go through the 10 common lessons from NDEs and it came out in their annual report and um, it's all in the book. But, you know, the first one is we do not die. Mm -hmm. And that means our spirit and soul leave us. The physical body dies. Yes, it decays. But our soul lives on. It has this long trajectory and, you know, you will, you will, you're not judged. You're not, you're never alone. Um, pain, there's no pain at death. All these things that people fear, um, it just doesn't happen. You know, the process of dying can be painful. You know, if you uh, are suffering from a disease that is very painful and you're on morphine, I mean, it, that can be painful, but the moment that you shut your eyes and your your spirit you take your last breath no there's nothing and i don't remember to this day the pain of the actual crash because my soul left before i hit the ground it's very interesting that a lot of near-death experiencers like you just before they have something very traumatic like you had they actually leave their body and never experience that pain Oh, I had enough pain when I woke up in ICU. But <laughs> let me tell you, I had actually at one point 10 different IV drips going. That's how bad it was, you know, and uh, and and it takes a while. I was the type of person, very intellectual. I worked at the Centers for Disease Control and used my mind to process things, even emotions. I think we're a very illiterate country when it comes to emotions. Most of us grow up with you're bad, feeling sad or glad. Or mad, you know, you don't really get the whole buffet of, uh, well, that was betrayal, or that was, um, you know, um, what do I want to say, um, resentment or gall or any of that kind of stuff, you know, it's just those four. So, and in the South, you know, most of us girls were taught you don't get angry, you know, at at your, your mother, especially, you don't want to hurt people, you know, and it, and it really is um, not a good message. I mean, you need to deal with anger appropriately, but you don't need to stuff it down. And uh, I, I think we're not taught that we're not taught it in families and we're not taught it in schools very well. It's starting to come online more, but most people have pushed down um, events in their life where there was a lot of pain and trauma and just tried to get on with life. And that's what I did too, because my mother believed that God and Jesus would be my psychologist. And she even told the doctor that they said, Nicole needs some mental health to help her deal with this trauma. And she said, no, she'll be fine. And I wasn't fine, Jeff. I developed an eating disorder. And back in the, the mid eighties or 83, you know, they didn't know about 
anorexia and all that, that was just starting to come out, but I was a compulsive eater and I couldn't understand why I would just want to eat hordes and hordes of food and then just feel horrible. I hated myself, you know, but it was all the pain and the shame of being blamed for something that I didn't do. And then the epilogue of the book will blow your mind because my roommate at the Air Force Academy, there was four um, girls in my squadron that were uh, at my, you know, in the, whatever I want to say, the sophomore level and the rest were guys. And so we got to be very close to each other. Well, my roommate, I had not seen her in 38 years. So we did a Zoom call in May and the four of us got on. She quit the academy in December. My accident was in August. She she quit the academy in December. Didn't tell a soul. She just quit and went back home to Vermont. And nobody ever saw her again or heard from her. Hmm. Uh, no excuse why. So she told us why in the Zoom call. And she blamed herself for the wreck. And she couldn't face going to the academy if I wasn't going to be there and what she had done to me. And I'm blaming myself for it. And then the guy that was drunk, he wasn't blaming anybody. <laughs> he was like, you know, it was like, but there were really two victims in this. And it was such, when I heard her tell her story, I actually went into shock. And I, I had an eight-day migraine. And I finally had to go to the hospital and get, get um, some drugs to treat it because I couldn't believe it. I could not believe she had not said this to me 38 years ago. And she thought I knew it. And it's the miscommunication that we have with people. One person thinks one thing and the other one doesn't know it, you know, and that's why communication is so, so crucially important with making sure, especially with trauma that you understand and just in daily conversation, but making sure that you just don't assume somebody knows something, but it's in the epilogue. And I already had the book at the publisher. So I had to go in and re-edit that because I said, this happened for a reason that 38 years later, she comes, you know, we get together and I find out the reason she quit the Academy was because of the guilt and the shame she felt, which wasn't even true. And I didn't remember that part. Um, I don't know. I'm trying not to tell you so people will read the book. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I needed to ask some I'm questions. I'm being a, a bit evasive there, right, but it's in the first part of the epilogue. And I really think when people read that, they're just going to go, oh my gosh, you know. All right. Well, I'll leave it be. Okay. Uh, thank you. Are there any, is there anything else that happened during your NDE supernaturally, did you see any other beings or anything else that we haven't covered? No, I think, um, I think that, that that's it. It was mainly going back with really clear message of the conversation that the other two angels were having. And then my mission, my purpose for going back. And I really tried several times to go back to the other side, uh, you know, with, with coding on the table and, and just, you know, there was another incident where I just didn't, they didn't think I was going to make it. So I have a very strong um, military angel, James, that guides me as well and protects me um, that's around with me. And he fought really hard for me to stay alive, to get to this moment. And so now that the book is out and the amazing positive 
response that I've gotten from the book. It went to uh, a number one um, bestseller for new NDEs on Amazon, and it's only been out for two months. Right. And it has it's already sold over 500 copies. And people are just, I wrote it from my heart. I wrote it total honesty. Uh, I exposed myself, which I was really nervous about because I didn't know if I was going to get pushed back. Uh, but I just said, you know, I'm not writing it for my family. I'm writing it for people that fear death. I'm writing it for people who have had trauma and they don't know why things have happened in their life. But then the memory comes back and it changes. You go, oh, this all makes sense now, you know, and we are in a society now that is very traumatized. There's a lot of PTSD and there's a lot of depression and anxiety that's going on in our country right now. And you know, uh, uh, regulation dysfunction in terms of your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex, you know, not being able to regulate that and getting put triggered um, and being put in past situations. And then you're just kind of on, um, you're, you're not on, um, uh, what do I want to say? Your parasympathetic system is not engaged. You're in sympathetic, fight, flight, or free, you know, and that's not good for your body or for anybody around you to be putting yourself through that all the time. But you don't even realize where it's coming from. Once you remembered all this and you discovered that your purpose is to share that we don't die and life goes on, are you living a completely new life now that you've discovered this purpose? What I can tell you is I've always been in the wellness field. And if you look at the wellness wheel and you divide it into quadrants, the first one is physical. Okay. And so that's things like I'm a dietitian by training. Okay. So I developed an eating disorder. So I went and got a degree in uh, dietetics to try to fix myself. A lot of us do that, you know, <laughs> to go into what fields that we really need help with ourselves. And then when I realized, oh, it's more than just the food, you know, it's a um, mental condition as well. And then I did that for a long time. I was a, a a dietitian in a hospital and did oncology. And then, then I started realizing, you know, people know what they need to do, but when they get stressed, it's like all that knowledge goes out the door. So you're home eating your pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and you know, it's not good for you, but you had had some, had something earlier happen that day that really triggered you and you can't really get at the trigger. So you want to numb yourself out. And so it doesn't matter how much, you know, at that point, that food is going to work temporarily, you know, so then I wanted to understand that part of it. So I, I started getting more into the mental part and the, the emotional part, which is where neuro emotional technique came in for me. And I learned, I went and get certified into how to get into uh, the unconscious. And there's a lot of that going on now um, with hypnotherapy, with EMDR, tapping, all these different um, techniques are coming out to help people with that. And, and they're great because we do need help to understand that. You just can't remember it on your own. And then you just go back and you're at that age and you go, yeah, that's what happened. And I never processed it. I just, you know, my boyfriend told me I had a fat butt and I just was like, uh, okay. And um, I never dealt with it. I never said anything to him. And so now every guy I date, I think that's what they're thinking, right? So it's things like that, you know, but it's stressing you out. So I worked with people for seven years doing neuroemotional technique. And then when I moved to New Bern two years ago, I got real clear that 
it's time now to finish my book, to get it out there. I now know how the ending is. I was struggling with the ending and I got, um, I hired a company to help me with it. And here we are. And I'm not going back to nutrition, even though I spent decades. I, I mean, if you want to ask me some questions about it, I'll tell you, but most people really don't want to know. They already know, but it's understanding why you are choosing these unhealthy foods and what you're sabotaging yourself with. And, and once you figure that the why out, then you're aware of something and then it's a choice, you know? Um, so right now I'm really excited and open to what doors are going to um, unfold for me in this process with this book and um, the opportunity, just like with your platform, to get this message out there. There is a book club discussion for people. Um, I highly encourage you to get the book. It's going to be a deep discussion um, because most people don't want to discuss it. You know, it's just like, oh, put it off to the side. Let's do something fun. But it's an important discussion to, to talk about what your fears are. There's a fear checklist. Um, I will zoom in on a uh, book discussion if I can make it work with my time zone and actually be there to help you guys answer questions or talk to you. Um, so that's something complimentary I'm doing as an author. And um, the book has gone, like I said, to a best-selling status. And I just, I'm overwhelmed with that. I just am like, people are where the world is right now. I think this is an important topic. And um I think the timing is divine and I'm looking forward to uh, more opportunities. And if I can affect just one person, Jeff, which I know I've already done, then I feel extremely grateful and honored, but I really, it's time for me to be of service at a different level. So I'm now in that fourth quadrant of healing, which is our wellness, which is spiritual, which most wellness companies don't touch. Earlier, you talked about changing limiting beliefs. Do you have any advice for us on how to do that? Yes. Um, you have to understand what a limiting belief is. And then you have to understand how, uh, like in fear, you lose clarity. Just think about that. When you get in fear, you lose your clarity. And in order to regain your clarity, um, you got to address those fears. OK, and that's why I'm telling people you need to address the fears with death in order to truly fully live. Most of our fears are irrational. Would you agree with that? No. OK, so um, they're not true and they're from the existence of limiting beliefs. So without those limiting beliefs, you would exist in a state of alignment, which is what I was talking about before. I needed to get myself in alignment before I started putting myself out there. So alignment or aligned is the goal that so we can reach this higher level of clarity. So it's getting embodying feelings. Okay. So if you've been a person that intellectually processes emotions like, yeah, I know I should be angry at him. He did this. I'm angry. Okay. That's not getting into your body. You know, your body's not feeling it. You're cutting yourself off here. So to be able to work with someone um, is that, that can help you embody and start feeling in your body emotions. Right. Okay. And then a great, a great little exercise that I got from Lee Harris, who is a, an energy uh, healer, uh, intuitive. He says every day on a piece of paper, ask your soul, 
what does my soul want, want to tell me today? So write it at the top of the piece of paper and say, what does my soul want to tell me today? And then just see what comes up. Do that every day for two weeks and see what happens. Okay, because you're starting to dialogue with your soul. And most of us have never done that. It is a relationship. The soul is a part of us. Could you say that you're having this dialogue with your higher self? Yes. And, you know, your soul is here. I mean, Rumi said this, my soul is here for its own joy. And I think so many of us are missing the joy because we get caught up in the belief systems, the identities, the worrying and all of that, instead of being able to be free of that, to experience the beauty and joy of this wonderful place that we have to live. You mentioned that you had a fear checklist in your book. Can you give us some other common things that people have fear about besides the fear of death? Okay. Fear of um, public speaking. That's a, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I think another one is fear of being found out that you're a fraud in some way. There's a belief system that you really don't know what you're talking about. And so somebody's going to really find that out one day. And you're going to get exposed for being a fraud. Mm-hmm. I know a, that sounds weird, but no, people it, do. It doesn't sound weird, but you know, it's interesting for me is narcissist is such a big buzzword in the media today that it's like yeah. they would be the opposite and say, oh, you know, I'm the greatest. I'm the best. Yes. Well, that is exactly true. And yeah. they have no conscience about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing um, with, people that are sensitive and empathetic is that you have to really put boundaries around you because you have to develop a thick skin and we tend to have very thin skins. And in order to operate in our world today, as it is, you need a thick skin, you know? Um, And I'm having to learn that as well. You know, Um, I got a a one-star review. Um, The rest have been all five. And I looked and it was a doctor and it wasn't even about me, Jeff. It was that person and the grief they're going to, and they were looking for an answer. And I will tell people the answer is not out there external. The answer is always internal. And that's why dialoguing with your soul is really going to help. And it's going to be new for you because it's going to be trusting yourself, the fear that you can't trust what you're remembering. And that was a lot of my fear that people were like, well, aren't you making this up? You know, um, a lot of people struggle with sexual abuse, the memory coming back and believing themselves that that actually happened, you know? Um, so I think being, being believed, you know, when, um, it's your memory, it's very, 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 uh, scary to put yourself out there like that because there's so many people, well, I need evidence, you know, and this is not, you know, an evidence-based realm we're in, Mm -hmm. you know, it's an experiential, you know, and it's, you're human and you're spiritual. And ultimately you go back to spiritual, but you have to be able to deal with the human elements while you're here. So yes, I still get afraid sometimes about stuff because I'm human, you know, Mm -hmm. but I really have to look at it and I process it a different way. So I'm training my mind to do it differently, you know, and thank God the brain has the plasticity that it does to change this, you know, and when you 
you, when you can heal these trauma wounds, you know, that's the saddest thing about my parents is they both came from horrific traumas in their lives. My mother was uh, born in the Ukraine. So now at 84, she's in Australia to see them at war again. It is absolutely devastating her to see her country torn up again. Um, but she has survived World War II, um, so many things, my accident, other things, and she's never gotten help, never any type of mental health, never any type of medication. She's just believed in God. So she's gotten very, very narrow about religion. I would call it a religious addict, um, that that is the answer to everything for her, you know, and it. Unfortunately, um, that level of gripping something so hard, believing that that's got to be the answer why all these bad things happen to me. But because she never healed it, she has no compassion or empathy for me and what I've gone through. It's just, okay, you're walking again, you know, or you, you're physically look okay, so you must be okay. And that's not true at all, you know, but so many people judge based on appearances. Have you noticed either right after your accident or after you recalled the experience that you had new mental abilities that you didn't have prior? I have been working on this probably, I would say, the last um, maybe six to seven years. Um, and that is more of me working with my guides, realizing I have guides, uh, me trusting uh, the relationship and what they're guiding me to do. And um, I, I, that's all new to me, you know, and I have had to practice it. And, you know, and then the evidence will show up, you know, it will either happen or not, you know. Uh, so it it's, I think, something that you have to work with and you have to be open minded and uh, trusting that everything has a divine order and timing to it. And you have to um, suspend your disbelief or, you know, you're, you, you have to just suspend it and say, okay, I'm open to whatever it is that I need to help transform my life. You mentioned that you are possibly going to be part of book study groups. Yes, I so, offer that on my website. So if you go on to www.nicolekerr, and that's K-E-R-R.com, uh, there's a whole section on book uh, discussion groups. And I would love to come in if your book club decides to choose my book to read and, and talk about when you're actually discussing it. If we can make the time zone difference work, I will pop in for 30 minutes, a complimentary uh, to say hi to people and whatever questions you have that I could answer from um, my base of knowledge and experience, I would be honored to do that. And, you know, one of the things that I, I did on my book is I put the credential, I don't know if you can see it there, BTDT. Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea what that means? Nope. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> because of all the letters after my alphabet, uh, you know, all the alphabetical letters after my name. I think that's the most important one. And I think you can trust someone who's really been there and done that. The, the experience of life outranks theory and um, mind 
hands down. So I, I put that up there because I really have been through this. I've spent my entire adult life trying to figure out this whole piece of my life. And I've coined the term, um, it actually is a word, eternality. And it's the quality or state of being eternal and having no end. And that's what I am. I'm an eternality advocate because we are everlasting. Our soul is everlasting. It's without end. And I hope that we can start changing the culture from doom and gloom about death to one of positivity that our soul goes on, that we don't die, that we're not judged. We're never alone. All these wonderful positive things about death. Do you believe in reincarnation? And if so, why do you think we keep coming back over and over again? Our soul definitely, this isn't our, our first rodeo. <laughs> we are coming back again because we come in with um, a contract to learn a lesson. And if we're not able to learn that lesson, then we have to go back. And that's one of the, the 10 common lessons is you do a life review when you transition to the other side. So you need to understand like, why my, you know, my mother, part of her life review, in my opinion, is going to be, you know, why she couldn't be open to other forms of help, you know, and then seeing that her version of God was skewed. And, um, and that even though I've tried to tell her my version, that she is very critical and judgmental, and it's not the Bible, you know, it is, it is literally everything has the, the Bible is is the word of god period and and that's just you know when you look at how it was written you can you can find the things that are not true about that and people take it out of context all the time you know and so um you know i think she's got to keep learning whatever she needs to learn to get to that place you know um and i think that's what happens with people is that for whatever reason in this incarnation of their soul that they are not able to get the um the message the transformation the um vibrational shift up and then they have to come back again um to to learn that or something else that they agree to I believed you were raised in a religious household and then during your NDE you experienced God, and you didn't remember that until later. What is your viewpoint now, or what type of religion or spirituality do you practice? Well, I was raised, uh, and this is in the book as well, Southern Baptist and Lutheran. My dad was Baptist, my mother Lutheran. So I had a lot of church, a lot of church. The Sunday mornings was the Lutheran, Sunday nights was the the Baptist Bible drill, you know, Wednesdays, uh, and then there was revivals where you had to pack a pew, all that. So we were in church a lot. Um, the Baptist at least made it fun because they had uh, a bowling alley, basketball court. They did recreational sports. Okay. So they, they were able to, to at least make that part fun. But uh, the message is, was very clear. You know, um, if God was dual, there was a duality. He, he was loving and kind and protective and yet 
if you disobeyed any of these rules and the rules just seemed to get getting longer and longer, then you were going to hell and fire and brimstone and uh, very punitive and judgmental uh, phase of God would come out. So it was very scary actually to, to do that because you were always trying to please God. But for most of us, our earthly father is really, uh, how we see God, you know, because that's okay. If we're not pleasing our earthly father, then we're not pleasing God, you know? So I think that's how it takes its earliest form. And, you know, that gets to be such an imprint in you at an early age that it's really, really difficult to, to get out of it. I call it a vending machine concept of God, where you put in the right behavior, you put in the right change and you hit coca-cola but a coca-cola doesn't come out you know a mountain dew comes out and you go wait a minute i did everything right why am i getting a mountain dew you know or nothing comes out so it always comes back on you that you didn't do something right you're the, to blame you're to shame you're the guilt you know and that is not true the form of god that i experienced up there first of all um you know that white light that comes uh, that is the thing I always remembered throughout the, through since, since the accident happened, that was the one consistent thing. And so I believe that that light is so it's not blinding. It is amazing. And that is God. God is energy and God is love period. There's no place that God is not. There's no beginning. There's no end. After watching this podcast, people may want to ask you questions. Are you open to that? Absolutely. Yeah. Just go on my website and you can, you know, I can send you a free um, sample of the first chapter. You know, the book is available on Amazon. It's paperback, hardback, Kindle. Um, I'm going to do an audio recording, I guess, of it in November or December. So that will be coming later. Um, and it's, um, right now on Amazon, uh, they do have it discounted, but yes, you can, uh, Nicole at NicoleKerr.com is my address. You can follow me on Facebook, um, Instagram, uh, you know, and I try to, to, um, answer everything. I mean, I'm doing all this myself, but this is now my full-time job. And I feel very grateful to be able to have the resources to do this. And, um, it comes at a perfect time in my life. And, I'm, I'm happy to, to give you any uh, answers or feedback that I can for my life experience. And if not me, put you in touch with somebody who maybe could help you. Now you showed us your book, but some people may just be listening. So what is the title of your book? Okay. You are deathless. A near death experience taught me how to fully live and not fear death. So you are deathless. Well, Nicole, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Never forget the most important thing in your life is love. Love is all that matters and is the source of all that exists. And that is why God is love. So love yourself unconditionally. Really start going on the journey of what that looks like for you. Cool. Thank you for that message. And thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Jeff. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Me too. 
Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.